Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors reveal their creative process through a handful of objects. I'm Katie Brand and today I'm joined by an author whose first book won the Orange Award for New Writing and her most recent novel, Ordinary People, was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction and is on the list of the New Yorker's best books of 2018. And the objects my guest has brought in include a miniature Red London telephone box and a very old sketchbook filled with pictures. It's Diana Evans. Diana, hello and welcome. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Now, obviously, we'll talk about your very interesting and visually very pleasing objects as I sit <laughs> in front you. of them here as we go on. Before we really begin properly, can you give us just a little brief synopsis uh, of the novel? Sure. Ordinary People is about um, two middle class black uh, London couples and their relationships over the course of one year. And it begins with a party to celebrate the first election win of Barack Obama, doesn't it? Yeah, it it sure does. You did something similar in 26A, where you bookended it with the sort of big celebrity event that sort of somehow sets us up. That does seem to be a recurring device in my fiction, that that I use these large global and cultural political moments to kind of ground the lives of my characters in, in the world that we all know. It gives me kind of a larger backdrop to put their sort of smaller domestic and sort of psychological problems against. Mm -hmm. And I was actually reading lots of books while I was composing this novel and I was reading War and Peace. Um, Which is mentioned in the book, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. That book took me two years to read, but... um, (laughs) That's not bad going. I think that's pretty good. If you get to the end at all, I think. (laughs) I was really proud of myself when I got to the end. I did stop halfway through. I got to page 800 and thought, no, 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 I'm just not going to do this anymore. But then it just niggled at me and I I had to go back to it and finish it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I loved the way it opened with it, with a party, and that's where that idea came from. Um, he was trying to open a window onto the world of the Russian aristocracy at a particular moment in time, and that idea uh, really resonated with me because I was trying to depict the black British middle class at a particular moment in time, which was around 2008-2009. I felt that it was worthy of documentation. And we have Damien and Stephanie, don't we, who have three children, and then yes. and are married, and Michael and Melissa, who are not yet married but have two children, one who is quite recent yes. child. Yes. Because what's important about that, I guess, is um, there is a sort of psychological issue going on, particularly with Melissa. She is experiencing some kind of nervous breakdown. As I also did some reading in, into nervous breakdown and what it actually is, and was quite uh, surprised by this idea of um, nervous breakdown being a result of what happens when there's a gap in someone's identity between who they think they are and who they're actually becoming, who they're trying to become. And and the friction occurs when there's a when there's an inability inside the person to actually accept this new person, to take on this new skin. And there's also an element of that feeling with some of the other characters in terms of, for example, moving out of London, but still Mm. feeling the pull of London and wanting to go back to London. And London itself feels like a character within itself almost. And you write very Mm. lovingly about certain parts of London, particularly Brixton. Mm. Um, So before we talk about that a bit more, I feel like I've got this... 
uh, red object glinting at me. <laughs> it's time for the phone box. Yes, it feels that it's time for the phone box, uh, your first object, which some may say is a symbol of London, although it has disappeared a little bit from our streets. Yes, but it's a miniature yeah. red London telephone box. So tell us a little bit about why you've brought that in in particular. Well, my mum gave this to me. My mum acquires these objects from I never know where she gets them from but she just gave me this miniature London phone box one day and it, and it really spoke to me because it is so indicative of London but also a London that is disappearing but will always be London and that's kind of what I was trying to depict. And did uh, your mum give you the the telephone box before you started writing the novel or during or after? Was it connected it, in any way? No it, it was during. And did she know what you were writing about or was it a complete coincidence? No, she didn't know. <laughs> so it was just a coincidence. That, that's the funny thing about writing. When you're really immersed in a project, things happen that seem to work as a sort of divine encouragement to keep you going. That was like a message from the heavens that I have to keep going with this book and that, and that it's right and it's going to work eventually. <laughs> well, she was right. She's obviously onto something. <laughs> yeah, but this was probably like year, year three she gave me that and I still had another four years of writing after that. So. Well, it's also, but, I think, from what I can see, a money box, which I think a lot of parents, when their children box. become writers, would, uh, would like yeah, you to... May, may, maybe it was a hint. <laughs> yeah. Go and get a proper damn job. <laughs> or at least put something in this. Exactly. I've never actually used it as a money box, funnily no, enough. No, I don't think any writer would, to be honest. Just stare at it. I don't know how you get the money out. Actually. Well, that's maybe yeah. the point. Aha, yeah. uh -huh. that's very mysterious. You have to throw it at a wall from bitter personal experience. Um, a lot of the characters in the book, especially Michael, are talk about, particularly in, in, in Brixton, the gentrification of that area. Do you find gentrification a worse thing than a good thing or can you see the advantages? Well I think it's part of the natural development of the urban space but there's a lot of displacement that has happened with London's um, black communities as a result of gentrification which is sad because a lot of what makes these areas so attractive to people is the culture and the music, the, the food that sort of creates that sense of bohemianness that people find so attractive. The people who actually have lived in those places for many years can no longer afford rents, can't afford to buy properties or houses of their own. People in social housing end up being moved out to these areas that there's no personal historical connection with. I think there needs to be more thought into where these communities are, are being asked to re-establish themselves. You yes. Know? The trouble is as well is that it's not necessarily the case that it's turning into something different but the same. I mean, if you look at something like Notting Hill... Even the people who can afford to live there complain mm. that no one's here at the weekend because they've all gone to their weekend houses or don't mm. really engage with the local community very much. The kids go to school somewhere else. So it doesn't even turn into something attractive. Do you know yeah, I mean? exactly. It becomes a, a, a facade. And I think if there's a lack of observation of the, the humanness of um, inhabitation of urban spaces in the gentrification project, then we're going to move more and more towards this London that is more to do do with um, a tourist idea of what London is, but not actually a place where where Londoners feel like Londoners anymore. Yes, yeah. Well, let's move on to your next object now, 
Uh, now, celebrity and particularly sort of the notion of American culture and celebrities, Barack Obama, also Michael Jackson appears quite a lot in the book. But another uh, American celebrity who features, and in fact, the title of the novel, Ordinary People, is based on uh, the title of one of his songs is John Legend, which mm. brings us to your next object. Yes. Let us know what that is. Uh, so this is a, a very broken and faded CD of John Legend's first album, Get Lifted. Mm-hmm. And this album features quite heavily in the novel. Of course, the song Ordinary People um, is one of the main songs that we know from this album and actually um, came to be the title of the novel. It's not my favourite song on the album, but it was the it was the song that, that spoke the most precisely of what the book was and what I was trying to do and the kind of message that I was trying to send. It's an incredibly mature song, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned Jill Scott in the novel as well, who's another mm. person yes, who Jill Scott, yeah. is a kind of R&B star who deals with themes and emotions in a very mature way it's not just sort Mm. of slow jams type we're going to have an amazing night and I'm so gorgeous and you're so gorgeous and our lives are going to be perfect those boring songs about love (laughs) what happens (laughs) then what happens later and John Legend's marriage himself is quite interesting and the way they handle themselves and on Twitter and she's very funny and and their marriage is quite interesting and fun to observe for what they'll let us in on it so it's a kind of perfect (laughs) I mean, I presume the CD's a bit broken and faded because you've played it so much. <laughs> I played it so much, especially while I was writing. Yeah. Ordinary People. And it always gave me this conduit back into the novel. It wasn't just John Legend, but Michael Jackson did that as well. Whenever I heard Michael Jackson, I immediately felt very connected to the novel and I could see the whole thing of what I was trying to do. Because I was completely obsessed with Michael Jackson when I was young and I wrote him long letters. I even tried to trick directory inquiries into giving me his number by pretending that he called me and not left the number oh, well, that's <laughs> I mean, well not really they just sort of like, it didn't work then. are you 12 years old <laughs> yes i am uh, but the uh, but it was it's interesting for anyone who's a michael jackson fan the last few years have been a bit difficult uh, oh yes yeah, and very tragic but also in terms of his reputation and legacy and um there's no doubt that unpleasantness and darkness was also part of his genius but Mm -hmm. I I find it really really interesting that the way you deal with that at the end of the novel talking about how his music is now free of the creator somehow Mm. did you have any of that in mind when you were writing that that particular stuff about how we the music is pristine even if the creator is not was that something you wanted to address I definitely had in mind this um idea of Michael Jackson of of somebody who had um fallen and who had this enormous talent and this enormous gift and gave so much to the world but never quite managed to inhabit himself with any real apparent happiness or success success in terms of being able to manifest who you are in the world in a healthy way and he never seemed to achieve that but at the same time his his music has brought us so much joy and so much excellence and so much sort of colour and, and poetry and vibrance. And so I, I wanted to, to to capture all that, but actually also to think about this other side of him. And, and, and it, it seems to speak very truthfully about the essence of um, what, what we can refer to as black 
identity, this idea of um, of greatness and and a great legacy and this sense of excellence, um, but that being juxtaposed with something that is also very tragic in its history um, and that has um, there's this complexity around how we inhabit blackness because there's this sense of tragedy in it all the time that we can never quite get away from. In terms of your family background is that something you feel very close to as well particularly uh, your mother who I believe is Nigerian and obviously that's something you just observe and experience and live every day of your life. In trying to encapsulate black Britishness or black British experiences I don't think you can get away from from the negative aspects of it and um, there's always the race is always an it's always an element in one's life and and that was one of the points that I was trying to make this idea that that race is actually it's a, it's a universal problem and that we have to all take on the the idea of race and and negotiate it in our lives in the same way that that black people always have to as a part of their experience. So I was trying to kind of open out this idea of race and say um, we should all be carrying this. And one of the ways that you, I presume, will deal with it is to put it in your literature and in your writing and, and to write about writing as well. And one of your characters is hoping to be a writer himself. Yes, Damien. Yes. and uh, <laughs> I love Damien. Yes, he's great. <laughs> yeah. There are moments... Uh, in the book about his him trying to be a writer and find himself as a writer, find his voice, mm. find these various things he needs or feels that he needs a special place to do your writing, all these things that are familiar to anyone who wants to write. Yes. And so your next object is a stress buster soft brick for moments of writing anguish. It also features briefly in the novel. Do you like to talk about the writing process via your characters within your books as a way to sort of deal with your own processes? Do you use a, a squeezy sort of stress buster <laughs> when you're really feeling up against it yeah I do use the squeezy stress buster brick when I when I'm struggling really uh, yeah I do um I don't often get to that point though where I feel the need to use it but its presence there on my desk just to my left is uh, is is helpful I find it reassuring I think that's partly why I connect so much with Damien as a character because I, I did give him this aspiration to be a novelist and the sense of struggle um, that is involved in writing. I could connect to that very, very deeply. So it, it felt like I was um, writing from a, sort of a personal place at that point. I could inhabit him completely. And he, at a certain point, goes to find an old outfit that he likes to write in and gets this bowl of water to put his feet in. And yes. Has, is that something you do as well? No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> so he has to wear, I think he has to wear pedal pushers. Yes. Um, and he has to put his feet in a bowl of cold water. Mm-hmm. I absolutely don't do that at okay, all. Right. But um, it was recommended to me by a writer friend, actually, because um, I work in the loft at the top of the house. It's very hot up there in the summer. And she suggested putting um, my feet in a bowl of water, which I was never going to do something so so stupid. But it occurred to me that actually <laughs> that's a really interesting thing for a character to do. Yeah. And I could really see Damien doing that. And it was very indicative of the strange things that writers often do and these sort of strange habits and rituals that they adopt to actually get them through this, this mm-hmm. sort of struggle. So what kind of writerly habits do you have apart from the stress break? Is there anything in particular that's kind of quirky to you that you do? 
I work in a green chair. Green green is my lucky colour. Right. So um, the chair has to be green. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this chair and, and looking for the right chair. Uh-huh. And I'm very particular about where I write. I, I can't write in cafes or on trains, that kind of business. I like to write in my green chair at my desk <laughs> in the corner of the room in the loft with my stress buster book to my left. And your John so, Legend's music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or perhaps something yes. new for the next one. Yeah, and I think it's partly because my process is quite messy it's quite chaotic no matter how much I try and make it neat it's very very messy now. and I do start in the middle and and I um I have no sense of chronology when I'm writing mm-hmm. I wish I was one of those writers who could just start and then go through to the end but it, it never happens like that for me one book that really helps actually is, is Raina Maria Rilke's book um, Letters to a Young Poet mm. Which which has always been very helpful to me because it reminds me of the importance of um, listening to the self, um, working from the self outwards and not looking out into the world for validation of what you're doing or, or direction of what you're doing. That knowledge has to come from within. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment, isn't there, where the story starts telling itself to you? So, I mean, I don't believe in that kind of magical idea of characters speaking to you and and telling you you know what's what's going to happen next it's more that um at one point in the novel you become so deeply connected to the characters you you kind of know what they're going to say and and um bits of dialogue sort of float into my head and I know that that is a part of the book and I have to find out where to put it Mm. So your next object is something you also used to write, I believe, and it sounds like it sort of plays into this idea of almost this artistic sense you have of writing, of seeing the whole canvas mm. rather than sort of starting at the beginning and working in a linear way. Yeah. Um, so it's an old sketchbook. Um, yes. Tell us about this. Where, where was this? Oh, wow. So I've just had opened this it. Um, sketchbook since I was about 13 or 14, and so I, I used to write... Um, little poems in it and there's a few sketches I'm not very good at sketching but um, so you're just flicking through it now and I can see that for example you so this was a a pictorial plan for ordinary people oh right some of it doesn't actually take place in the novel but this was a a sort of left to right tall diagram that helped me um, sort of work out the the order of the novel but I seem to need to see the novel visually in the way that we read mm-hmm. left to right motion mm-hmm. and also just changing the mode from words into pictures there's there's something very kind of stimulating about mm-hmm. that mm. um, but it's just really useful when I'm trying to compose a novel to because, do something else creative that isn't yeah directly with the novel but is somehow tangentially related you do find that just opens up some corner of creativity that lets you get back into the flow yeah exactly and I come from a very artistic family my sister's an artist a fine artist and then a couple of my other sisters are also artists or illustrators and my mum's dad was was a tailor so I've always thought in this very sort of artistic way so when you picture the story it's almost Mm. like a big canvas that has sort of lots going on but one like a sort of huge old master almost. Yeah, exactly. That's how I think of it. And initially when I'm thinking about the, the image of the novel, I just write a list of the objects that occur in the novel. So um, I'll, I'll put the, the river was quite a big one, the River Thames, 
and the car that Michael and Melissa drive, the red Toyota. Um, and I would just draw pictures of these, but in a very haphazard way. And it's only later on when I'm when I'm structuring it that I kind of use the left to right mm. pictorial diagram. So it takes on form as I'm progressing through. You're literally the ideal guest for this podcast. It's like <laughs> really? your whole process is about using objects to, it is. in order to create it. It's like you were made for this. Um, <laughs> I would love to play a clip from the audiobook, but before we do that, your final object that you've brought in, which has very great significance for the book overall, obviously, which is an ornament. I can see a very beautiful uh, ornament of a, a mother holding a little boy. Can you tell us what, what is so significant about this for you, why you've chosen to bring it in? Well, firstly, my mum gave this to me, another of her strange acquisitions from an unknown place. <laughs> does she ever explain? Does she ever say, she like, me this things. is why, or I thought of you when I saw this, or this is, she no. just sort of just hands it over? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. um, and so it, it's an ornament of a, of a mother, um, and there's a little boy in, in front of her, and she's holding both his hands, and he seems to be skipping. But I think the, the, uh, the surface of the ornament, ornament is interesting because it has this kind of kind of cracked design to it and also the the woman's right elbow is broken mm. uh, and that was <laughs> um that seemed to be um, quite evocative of the idea of motherhood that I was trying to depict of yes. this imperfect. <laughs> what I like about yes, what I like about the break is that the arm is broken off her body, but still attached to the boy's hand. Yeah, which does yeah, seem so, very evocative yes. of uh, the uh, the challenges, the emotional and physical challenges of motherhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I and think there's, <laughs> there's been so, there's so much focus on on the damage that we impart to our kids just mm. through parenting them. You know, and how we psychologically um, confuse them, and, and and that we form form them into something that they're going to have difficulty inhabiting later on in their lives. But I think there isn't there isn't so much attention paid to the damage that children inflict on their parents mm. just in being children and being parented. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's something really important to acknowledge as well, that parenting is it, it's not it's not perfect and it's really it's difficult and there there is this real sort of personal sacrifice involved in it. And um and I think it's the love that we feel for our children that makes that sacrifice possible. It is a singular love. There's no other love like it. Mm. But it is a very strong love and and even though it is difficult, there's I mean, I'm a mother myself and not a day goes by that I'm not thankful for my yes. children and that I don't feel the intensity of that love. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I also the the intensity of the agony yes. and the trauma and the torture of parenting as well. Yeah, and I do have a few friends who don't have children for one reason or another and there are a few that are so happy. Yeah, I know. I have friends <laughs> like that too. And free and you just <laughs> yeah. look at them and go, oh God, oh, God <laughs> I don't know if I can bear to spend too much time this week because it's too awful. <laughs> But I mean, it is a big theme in the book, obviously, course, with particularly with Melissa and the the way that have motherhood affects her sense of self, her sense of worth. Yeah, there's that, but also how it affects her relationship with Michael as well. That there's this imbalance in terms of how we parent our children, and I think that is still um, really rife now in relationships um, that we often end end up falling into these old roles, and and that the women often end up doing the bulk of the childcare and. I think the whole infrastructure of, of childcare in this country is, is quite geared against 
women. I think we should um, take on more of the Scandinavian model, making it easier to do co-parenting and, and dual parenting. That has a huge impact on relationships. And I think it's not just women who are entrapped by this. I think it's men as well. I think we're, 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 we're both sort of both genders are entrapped by these old mm. roles, these traditional roles that we seem to find it very hard to break out of as a society. Mm. Well, as promised before, we're going to hear a clip from the audiobook of Ordinary People. And uh, having talked about London earlier on in the podcast, there is a great bit where we follow Michael on his morning commute through London. And so I'd love to have a listen to that now. In the centre of the city, it was a different kind of dirt. The dirt of money, an extreme lack or excess of it. And it became a little like New York along the glitzy stretch of the Strand. Then onwards, towards the last stop at Tottenham Court Road, there was the great wide opening of Trafalgar Square, where Nelson soared up and the galleries flanked, where so many birds swooped as if it were holy, onto the cold blue fountain pool. On the bus, it was easier to convince himself that he was not part of the rat race. He was wearing a suit, yes, he had three suits, the black, the navy and the grey two of which he had acquired only recently when starting work at Friedland Morton. But he wore it with nonchalance, with a sense of disconnection between skin and fabric. His real self was untouched, unaffected, was actually wearing khakis, and over the suit he had on a large, quite trendy winter coat so he looked less square, less like a cardboard box with legs. On the bus there was a greater mix of people, and rather than facing each other and staring miserably into the murky darkness of below-ground-level windows, they faced the front. They were private and unscrutinised in their journeying. That was Ordinary People, written by my guest Diana Evans and read there by Jennifer Sighing. How did you feel listening to that? Some authors don't like to hear the audiobooks and others love them. But did, is, that, is that a sort of good realisation of how it was in your head when you were writing it? It's always strange when you hear somebody else reading what you wrote because the intonations are different. So it's, it's always um, different from the way you wrote it, which mm -hmm. is strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's such a great just to sort of take a sweeping through London like that mm, and that mm. sense that I've related to as well, especially I think he has a favourite seat, doesn't he, at the top on, on the, the left? Right yeah, I was on the right, yes. yes. And yes. Uh, I also have a, the favourite seat as well <laughs> on, the to on the top of the bus and you, especially when you're up high and you can, looking down and just seeing sort of people go about their business and you can feel that you're somehow removed or protected or cocooned from it. Yeah, it's also a very powerful place to be at the, uh, at the top deck right at the front of the bus because mm. you... Sort of, you can just see the, the expanse of London mm. and you're sort of advancing through the city and mm. that's quite a powerful feeling. That was actually my favourite chapter. Oh, good. I had a great time writing that chapter. It was kind of an experiment to see whether I could review a music album and write a sort of pictorial journey through London and write a history of a relationship mm -hmm. all, all at the same time. Was that possible? I'm always setting myself experiments and it really worked, and so that's why it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it has really worked. It's, it's been an extraordinary <laughs> success. It's been great. Um, and I guess that the underlying message of the book, that when you drill into anyone's lives, however ordinary they may appear, they're not ordinary, and no one is ordinary in their unhappiness as well. And there's that line in Anna Karenina where the sense of all 
happy families being the same but unhappy families being different. Was that one of the messages you wanted to convey, that even if people appear ordinary, they're really not? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to point to the drama, which is part of the ordinary, and ordinariness in itself is is not this um, mundane thing that we think of it as. It's It's actually much more myriad and complex. In terms of writing about the mundanity of everyday life and all of this sort of thing, and I think you mentioned John Updike once or twice in the book as oh, well. Oh yes, John Updike is very important here, yes. Really, and because it reminded me of his book Couples a little bit mm, as well. Did it? Yeah. That. Funnily enough, because I was reading Couples. <laughs> 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 and that was, along with War and Peace, that was one of the books that had a huge impact here. I was really taken by couples, partly because of the language, partly because the characters were so kind of immediate and, and off the page and they had this sort of universal resonance to them. But one thing that was lacking in those novels was just the, a real understanding of, of female mm. psychology mm-hmm. and um, what the, the women in these stories were going through when their men were sort of off gallivanting with other women yeah. and having these uh, dramatic um, Yeah, the women are always experiences. a sort of, it's, it's sort of exotic mystery, aren't they? Whereas, yeah, and they're just kind of left to the wayside. Yes. And, um, so that's why there's a lot of focus in Ordinary People on, on the very, very sort of close, ordinary experiences of women because I think that's really important to think about and to write about, to be able to talk honestly about women's experiences and women's lives, how it actually feels, the negative and the good things as well. Mm. Well, I think that's a brilliant summing up of the book, (laughs) (laughs) to write honestly and truthfully about the experience of women and and the men too, but to to get underneath the female experience, which you have done brilliantly in your extremely successful book, Ordinary People. Thank you very much to my guest today, Diana Evans, for coming in and talking to me about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss new free episodes twice a month. You can find us at sites like Acast, Spotify or via a podcast app on your smartphone. We're also on your Alexa-enabled device. And tickets are on sale for our Penguin Podcast live event with Mallory Blackman at the Lowry in Manchester on the 31st of August. Join Mrs Hinch as she shares the joys of cleaning up and soothing your soul. Followed by millions on social media, Mrs Hinch is teaching the nation how cleaning can relieve anxiety and stress. My home means everything to me. It means safety and cosiness and happiness. All of my achievements are here and it's mine and Mr Hinch's and Henry's home. And that means the world. No one knows what really happens behind closed doors. No matter how well we know people, we never truly get to see what happens when they come in, kick off their shoes and hide away. All of your secrets are in the place where you live. You probably have your best and your worst times there, and it's your private treasure chest that only you have a key to. The audiobook edition of Hinch Yourself Happy is available to download now.